Welcome to The Healthy Beast. Dr. Tiago Marquez, a psychiatrist, also runs a biotech company researching into solving mental health issues, Pazitea, who are the CEO of. Now, the thing we're here to talk about today is ketamine. Now, everybody has everybody has some view of this because now we're going to get onto it as it's used for clinical mental health reasons. But I guess we have to get out of the way what everyone thinks they know about it. And the first thing that comes up is horse tranquilizer. It is. Rich, before everything, let me just thank you for the invitation. And it's a pleasure to talk about the brain and about psychopharmacological treatments for mental health disorders. And it's, it's true that ketamine is a horse tranquilizer, but it's also a baby tranquilizer. So if we're talking about, if you talk to any, uh, anyone in the field of anesthesiology, they're going to say that probably this is a drug that they use to put someone for a short period of time or a baby because you don't need to intubate them. You cannot intubate an animal like a large port animal, like a lion, elephant, or a horse. You need to do the surgical procedure very fast. So you use this ketamine among other drugs just to put them sleep. You can do the procedures and then uh, it can revert rapidly. That's why it's been used for veterinary use, but also in, in human use. So it's been a drug that is commonly used in humans. So people think immediately that because it's used on a horse, it should be very powerful. And of course, it's a, a typical assumption of everyone, but you need to think that everything in medicine is a matter of dose. So for example, if you drink 200 beers you'll get very drunk and you potentially die. If you drink one tequila, uh, you'll probably be okay. So it's not a matter of, the, of, of only the strength of the drug, but above all, how much quantity you're actually using it. So it's not because it's using horses that is a, a very powerful drug. It's actually not that powerful as an anesthetic. I, I like everyone else. I'd taken this name, horse tranquilizer, you know, because we like things simple in our mind. Ketamine's yes. the horse tranquilizer one. You hear it referred to in popular culture as this. But something, it was only because I was going to do this podcast that I read up on it. And someone made the point very well that, yes, it's used in, in veterinary medicine, but then so are loads of other things that humans use. And this this person, they listed the whole range of animals it was used for, right, from elephants all the way down to gerbils and you say well you don't call it a gerbil tranquilizer but yeah this was the idea that it was this scary drug because it can fell a horse we could have called it the elephant tranquilizer sounds even sounds even worse but it's got this name and yeah i guess people fear it because of that but i think it was really a, a media thing because once it's it's feared as this thing that could fell a horse and people are using it a lot i i gather i spoke to a policeman friend of mine today and apparently ketamine is very big on the chemsex market so like meow meow and ghb it's one of these yeah. these party drugs that people use so is this must kind of does it hamper your research having this this public so perception all all of this repurposing of drugs we need to think above all that these drugs were not synthesized to be used recreationally all these drugs from mdma ecstasy opioids cocaine ketamine, they are all drugs synthesized in the lab for human use, even LSD. And then they were deviated from the lab to the street and they've been wrongfully used for years. And, and what the public need to understand is that 
everything can be used in a good way with a positive outcome, but they also can be used recreationally and sometimes with, with bad outcomes. And ketamine was one of these drugs that was used and synthesized as an anesthetic. And then it has been uh, used, for example, during the Vietnam War, it was used for veterinary use. And then at some point it started to be used recreationally and then it was prohibited. It was, uh, ketamine was one of the few drugs that continued to be used, like opioids, for example, to, to be used by medicine, which... Uh, in this case, as, as an anesthetic. But this has limited its use in other indications. And I'm going, to, for example, to talk also about psychedelics. For many, many years in the UK, to group by, by Professor David Nutt at Imperial, they've been trying to use psychedelics for psychiatric disorders. And they've taken so long for the Home Office to, to give them a license so that they could finally conduct their studies. And now it's been shown to be actually a very good antidepressant. So the, we, you have now uh, several trials, particularly phase two, and moving into phase three that show that psychedelics such as psilocybin is effective for the treatment of depression. Ketamine suffered and suffered from bad publicity and its use in medicine as limited is used recreationally as limited its use in medicine. And how long have you been involved with ketamine for mental health reasons? Because the trial's been going on for years, right? And, and sorry to... The first trial was published in the year 2000. So Portman in the year 2000 showed that a single administration of IV ketamine produced powerful antidepressants and very rapid. Actually, patients would patient recovered or improve their depressive symptoms in a matter of 24 hours or a few days. And you need to compare this with the typical lag of onset for antidepressants that last normally three to four weeks. So we, we suddenly faced a new class of antidepressants, what we call, what we call rapid-acting or fast-acting antidepressants, never been shown before with previous antidepressants. I've been involved uh, in research for many years, so I've been a researcher at King's College and Imperial College for the past 15 years, and I've mainly done uh, psychopharmacological studies, repurposing of drugs, and more recently, since I co-founded this company, we want to start providing ketamine infusion treatments in the UK and be the, one of the or the leading company providing this, this drug. The problem of, of ketamine and its, its use is that ketamine had, had the FDA approval in 97, on, the, on the 70s, in 1970, but never been studied in psychiatry. So, and, and since then, it has lost the patent. So anyone can produce a generic, a generic drug. So there's no incentive for companies to conduct proper phase three trials to show efficacy. And this is limiting the approval of IV ketamine for the treatment of depression. So, sorry to interrupt. So the, so the trials are being limited by the fact that there's no money to be made. Yes, exactly. So one company, Janssen, has, has been smart enough to create a mirror molecule of ketamine called S-ketamine. And S-ketamine could be patent, and they've conducted trials. And now S-ketamine has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of depression. It's very similar 
to ketamine is a mirror molecule, what we call an antiomer, and it's given intranasal. It needs to be given a, on a supervised setting. The problem is that it's very costly. So it costs a bit more than 7,000 pounds for a cycle of treatment. But IV ketamine has never been, it's lost its patent. So there's no studies, phase three studies for it to be approved by NICE or by other regulatory bodies. So there's a problem on the generalization of this drug. Can I, can I just interrupt? Sorry, because I think this is something that people from outside of the profession might find difficult to understand. And if I've got what you're saying correctly, it should, when something becomes cheap, right? So it comes out of patent in any one and then there are, there are parallels of this possibly in, in cannabis. We can talk about that later. When something's cheap, you would think, great, it's cheap. Therefore, it's easy to do what you want with it. But in reality, when something becomes cheap, the financial incentive's gone. So in fact, you have the opposite problem. Is that, is, is, is that the correct understanding of it? Well, it's one of, it's one of the understandings. And we know that marketing play a role. We will be naive to say that it doesn't on the promotion of drugs and particularly new drugs. And there's a lot of very effective drugs. And I'm talking about psychiatry. That is my specialty where very effective drugs are not used as much as they could be. And that uh, one of the potential cases is because they are old drugs. And I'm, for example, lithium for bipolar disorders that has been around for dozens of years and is still the most effective mood stabilizer, but it's not used as much as more recent drugs. And of course, there's a, a marketing or promotion of a drug or educational activities for doctors promoting these, these drugs that they're on for older drugs. And this is a problem across medicine. It's not because doctors receive any financial incentive for prescribing them because they don't. But they have access to educational activities, lectures or papers or whatever the doctor use to educate himself that are more of that are available for, for more recent products where we tend to forget old stuff. And it's potentially not only in medicine. We tend to forget what is old but still good and adopt new technology or or, or new stuff as they come along. And, and this has been the case, for example, for, for drugs in psychiatry. We also need to be aware that it's very easy to promote one thing, but med medicine is always very careful. So before we adopt and spread the use of a, a drug, we need to be sure that they are effective. Otherwise, we face the risk, for example, of what happened with uh, chloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19 that suddenly there was a study and everyone wants only one study that showed that there could be a, a role for that drug. Suddenly everyone was taking uh, chloroquine. And then when proper studies were conducted, we, we shown that actually it was not effective. And this highlights the importance of conducting proper clinical trials. Unfortunately, they are very costly. And for older drugs, because they lost the patent, we could not conduct them. So we entered this limbo where there is no money to conduct proper trials. So we're never knowledgeable if the drug is really effective of, or not. And this has been the problem with a lot of drugs. You can say cannabis, but you can say also for uh, uh, ketamine or others. So who's going to pay for it is another discussion. 
but we need to be able to rescue these drugs. And we've, we've done that successfully in medicine. For example, aspirin. Aspirin was an anti-inflammatory used to treat headache and other sorts of disease. And suddenly it was found to be a, a blood thinning drug. So everyone now with a heart attack start taking aspirin in a lower dose. So this is a, an example of a successful repurposing of a drug. And a lot of medicine now is about repurposing, finding drugs that are useful in one for one condition to use it in others. And that's what we're doing with these drugs that are now recreational drugs. We're picking up, if you see the amount of data that has come out recently from what we call recreational drugs, MDMA for uh, the treatment of PTSD, laughing gas for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, psych psychedelics for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, ketamine, you name it, almost that you pick one recreational drug and suddenly you found it to be effective for the treatment of uh, psychiatric disorders. So do you see a way out of, you talked about the limbo, you take ketamine specifically then, do you see a way out of this limbo, as you called it? The way out is to find ways to conduct this trial or, or be able to, for the regulators, for the regulatory bodies also to achieve new ways to assess the efficacy of these drugs. Some of these trials can be conducted, for example, uh, in university settings by the ac academic world, uh, doing meta-analysis, doing so combining data from multiple uh, small studies, we need to be clever on the way to assess this because the only thing that we cannot allow is prejudice or our own view of the drugs to limit its use. We have the moral obligation to provide the best care we can to our patients using whatever drug shown to be effective and safe. So you said we have to be clever. So a way, a way out of this limbo is we have to be clever. Do you think we are being clever? No, I think when, when I say we, I'm putting myself... And obviously you're being clever, because you're, <laughs> but do you think that the medical profession as a whole is being clever? <laughs> the, I think that society and the institutions that regulate the use of drugs needs to be clever, because... If there's multiple hints that a drug is potential as a potential to, be, to, to have efficacy, we need to find ways to show it. And uh, nowadays, the threshold is typically large-scale phase three trials. But for all drugs, we, we, we find a dilemma. If, we ha if I had the solution, I would say so. So we need just to to find the best way to, to be able to bring new life into these compounds. If you had to speculate on how, if everything goes the way it should do and we get the proper amount of trials, if you had to speculate about how big an impact drugs of these kind that people would, wouldn't think of as traditional ways of treating mental health, how, how big an impact do you think they could potentially have? So I'll tell you some numbers eventually. For, for example, in the US at this moment, there are approximately 70 million people depressed. If you think that 30% of them... In the US, have, you said, sorry. In, in the US. Yeah, 70 so million, yeah. 
70 million. So you 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 probably will say that at this moment you have like three, four million people depressed in the UK. So if you say that 30% of these patients actually do not respond to their treatment, you see that you have millions of people desperately needing new approach for the treatment of their disorder. And you need to think that there's a new epidemic that has been running and that COVID pandemic just boosted. That is a mental health pandemic. Numbers of depression and anxiety has been raising dramatically in the past five years. And only in the last year, the numbers have been over the top because of social isolation, financial difficulties, and so on. So I'll say that this is one of the most important public health needs that we're facing at the moment. Or mental health in general. Mental health in general. Yeah. And my question is about the, how much of that, you, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate, I guess, but how, how much, you know, what proportion of those people that don't, that don't respond to other treatments could potentially respond to psychedelics? Do you have any idea? Because presumably there are people that it won't work, it won't work for them, you know, because not everything works for everyone, right? Exactly. So we're talking about 30% of, talking only about depression, the majority of the studies like ketamine psychedelics have been used for a particular type of depression that is called treatment-resistant depression. So patients who have tried multiple antidepressants, typically at least two different types of antidepressants, different class of antidepressants, and they're still symptomatic. And this is approximately between 10 and 30% of all patients with depression. So this is our population. Out of this, the response rate to, for ketamine it's approximately on the range of 70% who respond to ketamine. 70%? 70% of these patients. So patients who do not respond to other antidepressants, they end up responding to ketamine. Of course, multiple trials goes from 30 to 90% in response rates. But if you aggregate data, it will be something between 60 to 70% of patients responded. And when I say responded, means that their symptoms subdue. They, uh, they, the symptoms they, are subdued. So I missed the word there, subdued. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, their symptoms reduce. Reduce. The problem of ketamine is that at some point, uh, patients will end up, because it's a very fast acting drug, patients respond immediately to the drug. As I said, in, in uh, 24 hours, patients are feeling better, but then the symptoms return. So you need to use it. Normally, it's given on a six-treatment course separated by by few days, and certain patients will never experience those symptoms. In the medium term, in some patients, symptoms return and patients feel symptomatic again. Their symptoms are are back. So it's not a miracle drug. It's not a drug to treat all of these patients. But I must highlight again that these are typically patients who do not respond to any other treatment. So if you have something that finally the patient feels better, we're talking about a huge improvement for the, for the functioning of, of that person. You're giving hope again. You're showing that there are some promise. You're showing a way, you're showing that 
there's something to effectively treat them. But of course, like any other drug, there's, there's problems and some patients end up responding partially, some patients end up not responding, but it's been very successful, these drugs, for patients who do not respond to anything else. Does anyone have, have you had anyone with bad reactions to it? Because you've had it not working on people, but does anyone have anything? So ketamine can produce some side effects and the typically side effect is what we call a dissociation. So it's almost an out-of-body experience. People start to feel that they are a bit out of control of themselves. They lose a bit the, the sense of controlling their movements and being in control of their self. And this typically lasts only for a few hours. And then it, and then it disappears. We also experience some some increase in their heart rate, some chest palpitations and so on, it also doesn't last for long. Although it must be said that ketamine is not for everyone and particularly patients who have a personal history of any type of psychotic uh, disorder in the past, such as delusions and hallucinations, ketamine can make them worse. So patients need to be screened beforehand just to be check if the patients are eligible to, to, to continue with this procedure. So there's always been going to be some patients who should not receive this drug. But in terms of side effects, they're normally mild and, and short-lived. When it, when it is successful, could you explain in, maybe in terms that a lay person can understand, but what is it actually yeah. doing to, into the, in the body and mind that causes this? improvement so, in their condition yeah it's it's a great question because it's it all goes back to what caused depression what's wrong in the brain in a person with depression and there's been a lot of reverse uh, uh medicine or reverse science on this thinking that well if typical antidepressants all the antidepressants that are on the market if they actually act on a neurotransmitter, a chemical substance that the brain used to communicate. If and typical antidepressants act on a neurotransmitter called serotonin, it's probably because depression is the lack, the absence, or some abnormality with their serotonin. Of course, the brain is much more complex than that, and depression is a very complex disorder. It's not only presence or absence of a neurotransmitter. And we know that there are other neurotransmitters that come into play. One of these is glutamate. And what actually ketamine do is that it blocks a receptor called NMDA. By blocking that receptor, it will cause rapid increase in, in a neurotransmitter called glutamate. And that cause a downstream cycle of events that end up activating other receptors, AMP and so on, and increase synaptogenic, in, uh, synaptogenesis in, in the end, the synthesis of new synapses into brain, and that's uh, how we think that ketamine works. There's still a lot of studies trying to make sense on the mechanism of action of ketamine, but it's through this synaptogenic mechanism to increase the promotion 
of the formation of new synapses in the brain. Oh, it's a lovely word. I've written it down. Uh, synaptog <laughs> synaptogenic. Yes. Yes. Okay. So it's, there's a bit of reverse engineering. So it, it does something and you're, to the best of your knowledge, working out what you think, it, how you think it worked. Is that? Yes, that, that's that's how it's it, medicine works uh, yeah. a lot of times. We we reverse engineering, or we we just check to the outcome and we try to disentangle everything that happened. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good to know because especially when I was asking you to explain it in a way that the lay person could understand, and you you quite quite rightly explained it that this is the best of your knowledge, you know, rather than knowing exactly. Everyone who says that they, they know how a depression, potentially there's multiple types of depression. So there's not only one single neurobiological signature for depression. Maybe depression is the final common pathways, the manifestation of different abnormalities that can happen. And so, is, for example, you can have an arthritis in one of your joints in your body. And that can be, maybe it's in some patients, it's rheumatoid arthritis, in other patients, it's other type of arthritis. So the way that the disorder expresses, it doesn't mean that they have a single cause. So nowadays, a lot of researchers identify subtypes of depression, and each one of these subtypes can have a, a different neurobiological signature. And that's a potential way to, to understand also mental health disorders, because the only thing that psychiatrists can look at is to symptoms, contrary to the rest of medicine, that you can take measurements, what we call biomarkers. You take bloods and you immediately see what's wrong. We, we cannot see properly what's happened inside this fantastic machine that we have yeah. that is the brain. So that it's a nice way of putting it. But you, see, you can't see what's happening, but there must be times when you're seeing someone clinically, Thiago, when you're treating them in whatever way it is, whether it's ketamine or something else. And as a doctor, you see, talk about the different causes of mental health issues. There must be times when you can see a problem and it's not, you know, that you can see a cause and it's not necessarily something as a doctor you can do anything about. This must be, I guess, frustrating for you. You just have to do what you can do, I suppose. Yeah, you know, it's as as a doctor is very people think a lot about cause and effect this is how we operate in the world and it's very easy to 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 talk to someone and tells me oh my boyfriend and my girlfriend break up with me i lost my job someone in my family died and and after i just develop a, a depression we all understand that and it's very easy to attribute causality to that to, the, to that depression. Some, however, I have some patients that arrive to me and say, my life is perfect, but suddenly I start to feel depressed. And, and then you talk with them and they say, well, my sister is like that and both my parents have depression. Maybe they, they, they are just, they have an endogenous depression. Maybe they're just predisposed to that. And then you talk to some other people and who tells you, well, you know, when the winter comes, starting in the autumn and by the winter, I'm super depressed. And when the spring starts, my mood is much better. They have seasonality on it, seasonal depression. So there's different types of depression with different causes. 
And some patients are just predisposed to develop. The same, and others are more resilient. Some others lost their job and their girlfriend, and someone died, and even then they keep on going and with a happy mood and positive. And you need to understand that everything that we are is the combination between nurture and nature, between the environment and our genetics. That's why some people smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and they died of something else later in life. Well, some people never smoke in their life and they have lung cancer. How to explain this? It's all these combinations. Some people are just predisposed to develop depression. Yeah, I mean, it's very unfair like that. But if you, if you can see something obvious that someone's going, going wrong in their life, you know, say that they're very physically unhealthy. And we know, again, this is just watching it and working out the reasons. But we, we know there's a link between your, your physical, um, how physically healthy you are and how well your mind is. So if you see someone who's, you know, eating terrible food, taking no exercise, not getting the right amount of sleep. It's almost you, you want to be able to sort all that out because anything else you do down the road is, is, is one thing, but, you know, you've got to get your building blocks there in the first place. And it, you're not really, I guess, as a doctor, it's difficult for you to intervene in that way, is it? Rich, you touch a very important point. And we need to promote healthy lifestyles because that in the end is very important to the brain. I, I gave a TED, a TED talk years ago called Run for Your Brain. And that's the importance of physical exercise on your brain. And there are studies done in twins that one of the twins is sedentary, the other one do exercise. And when you look to the brain, one of the brain is more shrinked and age more than to the other brain. And they have the same genetics. So if you go to a doctor with saying that, oh, my blood pressure is high, and if he tells you, okay, take this pill, it's going to lower your blood pressure, he's not being a good doctor. A good doctor would tell you, oh, stop eating salt, start doing exercise, lose weight. All of these non-pharmacological interventions, lifestyle interventions, and then you come to a psychiatrist and give you a drug. It doesn't make sense. It needs to give you lifestyle changes. You need to sleep. You need, don't come with that idea that you are a short sleeper. No, you need to sleep. You need to do exercise, aerobic exercise. You need to eat well. You should do meditation. You should potentially have someone with, with whom you could do psychotherapy, mindfulness, for example, such a good approach for, for dealing with anxiety. Reduce your anxiety levels. Find a, a good work-life balance. You know what is the biggest indicator for longevity that correlates with longevity is the size of your group of friends. And that's what makes you live longer. And people forget about these things. So everyone that comes to my office, I'll say, first, you need to start with that. If you don't take care of yourself, no one will. And then we can think about the drug. Oh, so you do have, you do have these honest conversations with people. Of course, of course. Do you think other do you think other doctors are doing the same or, or not? I think so, but they isolated for so many years since Descartes, they, they separated mind and body. 
like if the mind and body are like separate entities. And we forget that the, our brain is connected to our body by the neck and everything that's, that's happening in our body is controlled by the brain. And there's this bidirectionality, this link between the mind and the body that we all know, but the body influences the, the brain, particularly our gut. And there's all this new field of research talking about the microbiome, talking about how important is these living organisms that are in your gut that are producing substance that in the end they end up influence your your brain it's and everyone can remember moments where what they've eat influenced their mood and so on so we need to pay much much more attention to to this link but it's not long is it's not long ago is it you'd have been you'd been laughed out of medical school for saying some of these things. In fact, I did a podcast a couple of years ago with a, another psychiatrist called Professor Edward Bullmore, and he's written a book called The Inflamed Mind about, you know, and, and this, the, the main proposition was this, that a great deal, you know, you don't can't say exactly how many, but a great deal of mental health problems could just be caused by bodily inflammation. So it could be as simple as your eating too much sugar, not exercising enough, your body's inflamed, you have mental health problems. And you talked about this medical maxim that was the set, the separation between the mind and the body. Professor Bulmore was saying this was, he's, he's a few years old, he's, uh, I guess he graduated 25 years ago, something like that. And he, he was saying that the blood-brain barrier, this idea that the body and mind were separated, was was taught to him as, as something you couldn't question. It turns out to be utter bollocks <laughs> but there are still lots of doctors who stick to this you know you treat the mind treat the body as two completely separate things makes no sense but i don't know is, is this idea finally been pushed aside or is he still well professor professor bulmore is probably one of the smartest person alive in the uk at the moment is completely changing our understanding of the brain all the all his computational psychiatry's uh, new understanding of how the brain works is being made landmarks discoveries in in neuroscience this idea has been present in medicine for for years is changing now more and more and the good thing and and the good thing about medicine is that we all know that it's not static. It's an evolving, living entity that is currently being changed by new discoveries. And we pay more and more attention to, 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 to the psychiatric presentation of physical illness, to the way that the body influences our minds, and a huge, as you correctly mentioned, a huge attention has been given to inflammation Actually, people talk about dementia, Alzheimer, as being a type of diabetes in a sense that is there's insulin dysregulation, is a metabolic presentation, a, a, a brain metabolic disorder. So more and more we are aware of that. It's still, unfortunately, there will be always some, some, some doctors who are not yet open to change their their ideas with the new data that that come that comes out and i think we're living on an intersection of new discoveries opening to 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 new findings and integrating that in in research and in, into clinical practice 
you, you, an inter, you were at an intersection, you is how you put it. So you think things are opening up and we're going to have new dis, new discoveries and less people mm. kind of stuck on the same antidepressants for years. And Oh, yes. Oh, that, that's, that's for sure. You know, we are, we are living in a very exciting world for, for psychiatrists. As we, as we understand better the brain, more drugs will come out. And you see now, finally, after so many years of pharma companies basically dropping out psychiatry because biology was too complicated. They were, they've been investing for years and not coming out with anything. And recently, in recent years, new drugs have come to play. And for depression, you know, recently, very polemic, but you recently seen two or three weeks ago, the first new drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disorder. You see new antipsychotics currently being developed, antidepressants, drugs for treatment of disorders that has never been like for PTSD and for the other psychiatric disorders. I, I foresee a, a near future and all of this takes years to come from, from research to clinical use of new drugs, particularly new drugs with new mechanism of action, drugs that can actually target different receptors, enzymes, areas of the brain. And I, I think that the more we understand and of, about the brain, the more drugs will come out. Can I ask you about cannabis? We mentioned it very briefly earlier, but I, I, I noticed that you've um, you've done some research uh, at some point a few years back about uh, the effect that high strength cannabis can have on the brain. So I guess that's looking at the potential negative sides. But to look at the, the cannabis has been in the news a lot here recently because it was made legal for to prescribe on the NHS three years ago for children with epilepsy, but none of the prescriptions have happened. Do you have a sense of, it's a question I put to other people, but do you, and, and one that I've yet to get that good of an answer to, but do you have a sense of why exactly it's taking so long and what the blockages are in the system? So up to now, cannabis has only been approved, as I said, for certain cases of epilepsy. And I think that it's rarely used because, you know, it's still not, doctors tend to be more conventional in their approach. They like before they try a new drug, they try to, to test with older ones. There's no, no one is promoting. Doctors think that the parents will have something to, to comment about what they're doing and trying to push them not to do so. So I think there's personal factors to play, of course, to, from the prescriber, from the doctor, but also the way he percepts. So the, all these metacognitions about what are the parents going to think if I propose this, how I'm going to deal with uh, all the, the regulations about the prescription. And I think that's why it is not widely used. Then, again, touching on, on what I previously said, the amount of data is not huge. The amount of study is not large enough. There will need to be much more research being done with either cannabis or other cannabinoid uh, drugs, drugs that target the endocannabinoid system like cannabis. I think we are still in a very early stage of cannabis. It's gone through a hype. It's coming to a low and it will reach a maturity stage where we're going to find which are the indications for these drugs. Of course, there's also some side effects associated with, with uh, 
to regular use of, of cannabis. We need to find the correct dose. We need to find when to give it. It can limit when it's, when it's been given to, to a young person. It can also affect cognitive abilities. So there's a lot of factors into play. I see a future where there will be a space for cannabis in, in medical treatment. And I know that cannabis has been cannabis, CBD, everything related to the to plant, either from THC or CBD perspective. Uh, for example, CBD has been tried for the treatment of psychosis as well. Studies are, are still running. So we're finding a, a correct space for, for this. But as you said, this is it's not being promoted. It's, not being, uh, it's never w- well accepted because it has years of bad publicity. Only recently it has been approved. So there's a lot of limitations. Yeah, years of years of bad publicity, and I guess going back to the beginning, as has ketamine a little bit, you know, back to, the, back to the horse tranquilizer. I guess these things you just have to push through. You, you talked earlier about the lockdown exacerbating mental health issues, and I think it's something everyone's talked about because they're, they're like, well, you know, it has to. And there have been a few bits of data, but have you beyond? beyond just thinking, well, it must be terrible for everyone's mental health. Have you been able to kind of put any meat on the bones and see any real results and things that have convinced you of a way of quantifying it? To, to, to data is still coming out. And what's, what's interesting is for, although for some people, uh, for a large majority of people, all of this lockdown change of uh, life and routines, working from home and so on. Although for a large majority of people, this has been a negative outcome. We now, we are now aware for approximately 20% of people, this actually has been a good change. People are, these 20% of people are loving this new, their, their new life, being able to be alone, not interaction, working from home, which, which change our perspective perspective on how this was a devastating situation for every one of us. It's never the case. There's always some people who actually like it. So we are still collecting data, but what we've seen from the data published so far is that approximately half of the population have seen an increase in their anxiety levels in their past year. Approximately, Meaning, uh, approximately, sorry, approximately half, you said, have seen uh, an increase in uh, anxiety levels. Yes. But, you know, uh, increasing anxiety is not necessarily an anxiety disorder. It's not something that you need treatment, but people, there was a lot of fear involved, a lot of other consequences and life changes, and anxiety has increased where the threshold is rich, where we can say, okay, now we have a disorder. Of course, thanks God, it's going to be a much less percentage of, of the population. But definitely, we're going to see as the lockdown and COVID pandemic is down, hopefully, with vaccination, we're going to see a, a rise. And we're already seeing that rise on, on the number of patients seeking psychiatry. Of course, service has been overloaded with COVID patients, but now that service are uh, picking up again, you're going to see a lot. And if you talk uh, to any psychiatrist, they're going to tell you that a lot of more patients have come to, to seek help. So 
I'm expecting empirically to see a number of rises on to, on on cases of anxiety and depression at least. It sounded when you first said half of people have experienced a rise in anxiety. It sounds like a lot, and then you think, well, what about the other half? Surely, at some point, you'll have had some sort of increase in anxiety. Whether you're an anxious, I mean, it must at some point. Everyone's worried about something, haven't they? Everyone's worried about an old relative or you know missing things. So, so yeah, you could look at it. You could say that's quite low, really. You know, only half the people. (laughs) What about the rest? Hundred (laughs) percent. Well, I guess we just have to hope that along with the inevitable increase in these issues there's also an increase in the amount we talk about it an increase the amount of effort money and so forth we put into it and more research like like what you're doing yeah and then you know and the also uh, an increase in numbers can also be a, a reflection on how open we are now talking about this it's not only that diagnoses are increasing but we are also coming out talking about them so we're seeking help, and this is a positive thing about uh, about the, the, these recent years. You know, from Prince Harry to Popular to Britney Spears to others, people are coming out and talking about their mental health problems and how they suffer and how this is common. And so, part of this rise is also uh, a reflection on on the people's ability to to seek help and think that that I, I I can improve as more people understand that we we are bringing up new treatments and bringing up new approaches not only pharmacological but also from psychotherapy from mindfulness from many other approaches that people can find what is best for them. I don't believe that, and people tend to think again, cause and effect. If this has done good to me, then it should do also good for everyone. This is never the case. And there will be different drugs to different people, different approach to different uh, subgroups of, of the population. Yeah, no one's immune to the things. Everyone needs their building blocks. Everyone needs their eat well, their social circle, you know, security, all these all these basic things before you get medic medical intervention, don't they? A hundred percent. You know, I that's 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 where you start. You start by functioning well with yourself, within your social circle or family circle, and then as you said, there's building blocks then you add on complexity to your lives. But if the starting point is is not correctly built, if your foundations are shaken, it's much harder for you to have a, a good mental health state. Fantastic. Yeah, so solid basis for everyone. Chago, it's been fascinating talking to you. It's been amazing to hear about the work you're doing. So best of luck with all your Thanks, research. Rich. And so Dr. Tiago Marquez... From Pazitea, it's your biotech company. Thank you very much. Rich, thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Joe. Stay stay in touch. All the best. Likewise. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so it is a horse tranquilizer, but calling it one isn't very useful. Thanks again to Dr. Thiago Marquez. He's a psychiatrist and senior clinical fellow at Imperial College London. He's also director of a biotech company that we mentioned called Pazitea Therapeutics, P-A-S-I-T-H-E-A clinics.com, paziteaclinics.com. 
Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram and healthybeastpodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.